So every so often, if I'm bored, I'll hit up the old newspapers.com archives and look up some of the stuff I wrote long ago. Here's one. March 8th, 1996, Nashville, Tennessean. Headline, David Lipscomb finds strength inside. Dateline Murfreesboro. At least for a while there, it seemed like the magic of the purple and gold dinosaur would work. York Institute's mascot was hopping around the Murphy Center yesterday afternoon, somehow, someway, giving the Dragonettes the ability to convert NBA range three-point shots and 30-yard passes into points. But David Lipscomb found a way to slay the Dragonettes. The Lady Mustangs went inside to post players Rachel Huffington and Jamie Gaglioni and utilized a 26-6 fourth-quarter run to squash Spunky York Institute 69-46. I was 23 when I wrote that, and it's, it's definitely nothing amazing. But I like that I tried. I didn't mail in a meaningless high school girls basketball game. I sought out some creativity. I totally overrode it. But I went for it, and I gave it a shot. And if you're a young writer and you're listening to this, you should always go for it too. Never mail in a story. Never take a day off. Because you just don't know who's watching. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, toss a writer with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Brad Townsend, the longtime Dallas Morning News sports writer. This is episode number 264. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right. Well, Brad, first of all, thank you for doing this. I, I, I noted to you that we are two veterans in an increasingly young field and we did not screw up Zoom this morning. I think that's a win. <laughs> it's a win for our generation of writers. How do you feel pretty good about that? I do. Uh, I feel like a tech expert at this point, only on Zoom. Uh, I have to ask my kids uh, how to work my iPhone, though. Oh, my God. So it's interesting. You graduated from uh, UT in 1984, which makes me happy because that's 10 years before I graduated. From <laughs> it makes me happy. Um, it also makes me happy. You started at the San Antonio Light, a newspaper I know about because I wrote a USFL book and they covered the San Antonio guns, uh, the USFL. Yeah. Um, and you've been at the Dallas Morning News since 1993. You're hired in 1993 to cover the Mavs. I am fascinated by... The covering of the NBA in the 90s versus a covering of the NBA now, mm. it just sounds a lot more fun in 1993 than it does in 2022 as far as access, as far as player relations, right. as far as getting to know the players, as far as PR people actually having sway over. Is that overly simplistic? No. I mean, it's, it's starkly different. And I'll go back a few years before that when I was still at the San Antonio Light. And the reason I... The reason I ended up at the morning news is because the San Antonio light folded in 1993 and uh, the Hearst Corporation owned the San Antonio light, bought the rival Express News and closed us. So suddenly at age 31, I'm out of my ear. But uh, to backtrack a little bit, I was covering the Spurs. I covered the Spurs from 1989 to 93. And this is just an example of how different things are. Uh, Larry Brown had a had a young unknown assistant named Greg Popovich, and it's it's always the case that your relationship with the head coach is different from the assistant coaches, right? Uh, but 
having that kind of access, I traveled, uh, they, they traveled commercially. I tried to get on all their flights. You know, I spent a lot of time in airports with those guys. They'd be asleep half the time. Uh, but you, you know, you, you have everyday conversation with these guys. Well, I mean, I got to know Greg Popovich pretty well. And it was, I still vividly remember there was one time in Portland where he asked me if I wanted to go to a movie and we, we walked down to this theater, this artsy theater, and uh, it's a movie called Black Robe. And uh, of course we sit with, uh, you know, one seat between us and, uh, you know, we're, we're taking in this movie and uh, it, the movie probably don't know is it's about uh, Canadian Indian Indians that were being uh, where the Catholics came and tried to uh, bring God to the Indians, right? Well, at, at one point in the movie, this this priest is being tortured by the Indians and uh, actually having his fingers cut off with a shell. And so I'm not great with blood, and I literally blacked out. Wow. For like, I don't know. I don't know how long it was, two minutes. And I woke up. And I was, you know, pouring with sweat and uh, I didn't say anything. And then we're walking back from the movie, asked what I thought. It got kind of quiet. And then I said, uh, you know, I fainted, right? And he goes, well, I, I wasn't sure if you fell asleep or what happened. I wasn't going to bring it up. But, you know, something like that would never happen in this day. I know some of the Mavs assistants fairly well. But going to a movie with them on the road, uh, you just don't have those kind of relationships anymore. And, and a lot of it is just the sheer number of people who who cover a team these days. It's people want to say there's fewer journalism jobs. There are in terms of like newspaper jobs, but there's a lot of people trying to cover the NBA. And so uh, the, the, the thicket has really gotten tough to forge uh, personal relationships out there. Wait, so. You know, you're now kind of the the backup or the one A to Callie Kaplan, a, an alum of this of this podcast. And so, you know, she's a young beat writer. Mm-hmm. Does it even pay for her to try to develop a relationship with Luca, who's going to be obviously a star in this team for the next 10, 15 years? Like, does mm-hmm. it is he even going to know who she is? Is he even going to say, hey, let me give you 10 minutes on the side? I know you're always here. Does that exist? I think it does exist. I've seen a few examples this year. I've had a few examples with Luca as well. I mean, actually, uh, surprisingly, on a couple of occasions, if we pass, he'll say hello, Brad, and then I'm kind of shocked for a second. Uh, but I've seen it pay off in terms of when you're there day, day after day and you're on the road and you're really the only person that's on the team on a day-to-day basis – it definitely pays off. I wouldn't say that Luca walks up to Callie and says, hey, and have a pleasant conversation. But if the Mavs Media Relations uh, Director, uh, Scott Tomlin, or one of the assistants says to Luca, hey, Callie needs five minutes, it gets done. It gets done because Luca knows who Callie is and Luca knows who, uh, you know, that, that Callie's consistently there. Now, is it going to end up a situation where, they're great friends or, or that he's revealing parts of his life that he doesn't, that are, are private. That, that remains to be seen. I think those relationships, uh, unfortunately are going to be really hard to come by. Is he a good cover or a bad cover? Luka Doncic. He's a very good cover in terms of just watching him. 
you, you really have to be there in person to uh, to see some of the things and, and to believe. One of the things is you, it's it's amazing how big he is. Uh, I think people don't pick that up watching him on TV playing against, uh, you know, other guys who are six, seven, six, eight, whatever. Uh, a couple of months ago, I was covering a Mavs game and uh, Jason Witten was uh, had brought his kids uh, for a birthday thing. And, one, you know, you're Jason Witten. So you you go through the Mavericks and you fi- figure out a way to say hello to Luca before the game. Well, Luca comes out. They've got kind of like a two minute meet and greet. And Luca is looming over Jason Witten. I mean, it's not even close. And, and some of the passes he throws, you know, depending on what angle you're sitting in the arena, you can see this thing like on a on a on a dime. It just blows through like one side of the court to another. So in that respect, it, it definitely pays off. And then, yeah, you do get the occasional walk off uh, where he'll he'll be funny or he'll make a little quip. I think he's warming up. I think he's uh, the guy speaks five languages. And I think English is probably third or fourth, maybe even fifth on the list of what he's most comfortable saying. And I think that is part of it. I think he'll get better over time. I don't think he's going to be like a big media personality. I don't think that's going to happen. Wait, so when you came along and you were still in San Antonio and you were covering the Spurs, you had a rookie, David Robinson. And um, I remember thinking from afar and through the years, wow, this is a pretty boring superstar. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but I'm interested. What was that? What was a young David Robinson like to cover? Well, it was, it was fascinating because first of all, the, the year that I started covering the team was his rookie year and they improved by 35 wins. I think it might still be the NBA record. It, it broke the Celtics uh, Larry Bird record at the, t- at the time for like biggest one season turnaround. And regardless of how much of David's personality that he showed, the city just instantly fell in love with him. He was literally a savior. He was, there was always talk about the Spurs being sold and being moved. And so he was literally a franchise savior and he stood for all the right things. Uh, his parents, uh, we did interviews with uh, Frida and Ambrose and did the whole thing about his Navy background and upbringing. And so it was a great story. But David was a hard guy to get to know so much so that when Larry Brown got fired, uh, and he had coached David for more than three seasons, three three seasons and a part of a fourth. He himself said he didn't really know that much about David personally. And then the other thing about it is like David didn't ask Larry Brown much about himself. At the point that Larry Brown got fired, I don't think that David Robinson knew how many kids Larry Brown had. Right. It was, so it was little things like that that he seemed – uh, I don't know if it was aloofness or maybe a little naive. Um, he was kind of, David was kind of in his own world. He, he certainly embraced, uh, he appreciated being in San Antonio, he appreciated the adulation, but we didn't see a lot of David's personality. And actually, uh, probably the, the biggest parts of his personality were sort of manufactured in those commercials, the Nike commercials. So when you're when you're covering a guy like that and it's this guy's there's a love fest with the city. OK, and I'm mm-hmm. looking at that roster. It's a really fascinating roster of, of people from all different walks of life. But you have you have three guys on that team who are, you know, double digit year vets. You had Maurice Cheeks, known best mm-hmm. as a sixer, Caldwell Jones, known best as a sixer. And also Mike yeah. Mitchell, who'd been around for a long time. 
Um, and then you had Johnny Moore, the point guard had been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Do those guys roll their eyes at it all? And are you aware of them rolling their eyes? Like, hey, Johnny, can I just talk to you for two minutes about David? Is there okay. a like, oh, Jesus Christ, I don't really want to talk about this guy again. There was a little bit of that, uh, but I think guys were also conscious that, look, this guy, he is the guy. We don't want to, if we cross him in any way, it could be kind of the end of things for us here. I'll say, I'll tell you another thing that just popped into my mind about David. He's the first NBA player that I recall saying, I don't do game day interviews. And that's something that happened during his rookie year where he would talk after a game, but he would not talk. Usually you could go into the NBA, into an NBA locker room before a game. And if guys in there, you walk up and talk and start talking to him. That was the first time I remember a rule being put in place by a team at the request of a player. Don't come up to me before a game. So I had forgotten about that until just now. Uh, but no, I, there was some eye rolling, uh, you know what? NBA vets know when a guy's young that, that it takes some of these guys time to learn. Um, Maurice Cheeks was an interesting case because he really didn't reveal much of himself during that year that he was there either. And in fact, kind of one of the, the early shocks to my system as a beat writer was toward the tail end of that season. And uh, Larry Brown pulls me into the training room, says, Hey, uh, Listen, uh, does I just want to ask you, does Maurice Cheeks seem happy to you? And I was really taken aback. I was like, well, I mean, I think so. And uh, he goes, yeah, I, he doesn't seem happy to me. Um, you know, did you know he's been living in a hotel all this time? Uh, I said, no. Well, be writing 101, lesson not learned. Maurice Cheeks was traded the next day. Okay. Larry Brown was trying to tell me something. Wow. I didn't catch on. Wow. That's awesome. traded for Rod Strickland, as a matter of fact. You know, it's funny. I'm from New York and I remember when the Knicks made that trade and it remains a very confusing trade in my head because they right. traded a really promising, talented young point guard for basically right. a beaten up veteran who had nothing left in his legs. I mean, all of us thought the Spurs won the trade in terms of talent, clearly, right? But then when it came to that year's player, that was a good Spurs team. They won 56 games. Uh, They probably should have beaten Portland in the second round, and that series went seven games. And it came down to the seventh game in in overtime, nonetheless. There's a loose ball. Rod Strickland grabs the ball uh, around the free throw line and throws an over-the-head backward pass to who he thought was Sean Elliott cutting to the basket for an easy dunk. But the problem was Sean Elliott was not cutting to the basket and the ball went out of bounds and they ended up losing the game. That was a pivotal, pit, huge play. Maurice Cheeks doesn't make that play. Maurice Cheeks probably makes the safe play. Are they in a seventh game if Maurice Cheeks is still there? We don't know. Uh, Rod, Rod was a tantalizing talent. And the fact that he stayed 17 years in the NBA is kind of amazing to me, given how erratic he was in the early days. Wait, so you covered... The 92-93 Spurs, that was your final team in San Antonio. And this fascinates me. And I remember being fascinated at the time. They hired Jerry Tarkanian, who oh, yeah. was near and dear to my heart because I wrote this book about the Showtime Lakers. And Jerry Tarkanian was actually hired sure. by Jerry Buss. Right. And they, and they hired Tarkanian. And I remember thinking, 
this is impossible. This works impossible. This is I am fascinated. What was it like to cover now? Tarkanian went nine and 11 and was dumped by the Spurs. What yeah. was it like to cover Tarkanian as an NBA coach? I mean, I don't think your podcast is long enough for me to get in. So, uh, yeah, I've been on the beat a couple of years. They hired Jared Tarkanian. It's fascinating, of course. Uh, and then, of course, one of his first uh, moves is he wants to bring in Lloyd Daniels. And uh, and so, but I vividly remember the very first uh, road trip. Uh, the uh, Spurs played a game in Albany, New York. They're playing the Knicks. Uh, I'm on the elevator uh, with Jerry Tarkany in the hotel. Several Knicks come on. Anthony Mason says, hey, coach, how you doing? And Tarkany makes a little small tie. Yeah, I'm doing good. Uh, elevator opens. Knicks get off on their floor. Jerry Tarkany turns to me and says, who was that? Wow. I said, well, coach, that was Anthony Mason. You know, it's one of the guys you're going to face tonight. Well, also during that trip, I don't know if it was that game or the next game. And of course, back then, beat writers literally sat next to the bench. I mean, it was great. Uh, and in, in Albany, New York, where there wasn't really many press to speak of covering the game. Early in the game, Tarkany wanted to call a timeout, but he wanted to call a 20-second timeout. Instead of turning to the bench, he actually turned to me and the other beat writer from the other San Antonio paper and most, how do you call a 20-second timeout? He literally said that to us. And I did the motion of, you know, the putting my hands on, my sh- on the shoulders. Well, here's how you do it. So, I don't know if the man was like kind of like playing into the whole thing. I'm new to the NBA or if that was part of an act, but it certainly, you know, made my copy. You know, it was a fascinating part of that short tenure. And uh, there were also battles with uh, he was constantly complaining about, uh, you know, they didn't have a true point guard. And during that season, they signed Avery Johnson on a 10-day. And, uh, and of course, Avery Johnson proved to be a very good NBA player, a, a champion. Uh, but Jerry Tarkanian didn't think that that was solving their point guard problems and would privately grump to us. And so, and I ended up writing a couple of stories about it. Well, here's the kicker. So that season, we found out early that season that my newspaper was either going to fold or be bought by somebody else. The only way we were going to be kept alive was if somebody else bought us and kept us open. So it was, it was like a ticking time bomb. We knew that at some point of the season, the paper was going to fold. And I was, so I was literally like kind of dead man walking, but I try, I wanted to make the most of the B. I was covering the season just like any other. And I wrote some pretty big stories. Uh, I remember writing one about the Spurs weren't chartering were the only team uh, in the NBA that weren't chartering. And I got players to grouse about that. Went down to David Robinson's room and got him to sign it so we could have a signature on a letter that he opened letter to Red McCombs that ran on the front page of the paper. So long story short, he got fired right before my paper folded. Okay. And so the joke was I went to his hotel suite and his first words were, hell, I didn't think that you were going to outlast me. You know, so (laughs) it was like I'm standing in this vast hotel suite on the top floor of the Riverwalk Marriott or whatever. And it's this elegant room and all this stuff. I'm thinking, first of all, why has this guy been living in a hotel all season? And second of all, it's just utterly fascinating that that, that's what his first words to me were. 
about me that, you know, he's surprised he, that I outlasted him. But here was the other kicker is he knew that he was already facing some issues from Red McCombs. And so he ended up, I think Red uh, tried to withhold his salary. And so uh, when I did get, when the paper did get uh, folded a few, couple of weeks after that, one of the first people to call me was uh, Jerry Turkanian. Wow. To ask if there, if there was anything that he could do to help. That was a twist I didn't see coming in this story. Yeah. Well, I think part of it, though, and it came out, uh, Red was he was trying to sue Red. And so maybe part of him wondered if he was going to need me at some point. Right. You know, to vouch because he literally one of the things I published was a letter that he wrote, an open letter. It's just all day just doing something like that, saying we need a point guard. And so. I think Red was using all this stuff to try not to to try to uh, not have to pay Tarkanian. And, you know, uh, the other person, one of the early callers also that I received was uh, Greg Popovich. And by this time, he was at Golden State and he was an assistant under Nelly. And he actually called to let me know that the Spurs were going to be sold. Wow. And that he was going to be brought in as president. I said, well, coach, uh, you know, I don't have a way to publish this. He said, I know. Uh, I was hoping you could use that information to get hired. Wow. That's incredible. Those are the things you don't forget in life. I got to say. Absolutely not. I think about every time I see pop. Do those relationships, reporter, player, reporter, owner, reporter, coach, do they exist less frequently today or not at all today? Less frequently. I think one thing that uh, young reporters really need to do, and sometimes they miss the boat on this, is when you're when you're starting out on a beat, look for opportunities to do the more the the in-depth stories, the personality profiles, particularly on the the management. Like if there's when Nico Harrison got hired by the mass, we I set out to do a profile. Right. Nothing had been done on the guy. That's one way that you establish relationships like that. When you're when you're calling a guy's mother to ask what he was like as a kid, it just lends your a you know more. You come to know more about that person. You get to know them on a different level, right? And I I see fewer a lot fewer of those type stories being done. And I think young report and and maybe that's and maybe that's a, a causation of the fact that. Uh, teams are just kind of generally more closed um, to today's sports writing world or, you know, journalism world. Um, the avenues are there. I, and, and obviously I think it helps that over the years I've done those kind of stories. So when I go to the Mavs and say, I'd like to do a profile on Nico Harrison and they kind of know I've done those in the past. Right. Wait, so I'm fascinated. You go, you jump to the Dallas morning news, you're covering the Mavs. There's something I've always been interested in. And as soon as you agreed to do this podcast, I thought, I'm going to ask him. <laughs> the early to mid 90s, you have Mason Kidd, you have Jamal yeah. Ashburn, and you have Jimmy Jackson on the roster. Oh, Lord. And I know where this all, is going. There's all kinds of rumors going on about what the hell yeah. is going on. All national. Did so and so sleep with so and so? Did so and so hate so and so? This guy couldn't cope <laughs> this with this guy. What happened with Jason Kidd? Jimmy Jackson and Jamal Mashburn. And what was that like to cover that weird mess of a trio? 
Well, yeah, man, you just opened Pandora's box here. And I have had, I think I've said this a couple of times over the years. Uh, there was definitely a woman involved. Okay. There was, you don't get to the point where you're on the court and, and my, my editors and I had these discussions at the time because we knew something clearly was going on. Okay. And the, the moment that we decided that we were going to finally write the story was when it clearly was affecting the team on the court where Jason and Jim Jackson are not even looking at one another on the court. You got the point, you got the two guards who aren't looking at each other. That's an issue on the court, whether they want to say it or not. Right. And I remember asking a lot of questions about this. Uh, and at the time, all I heard was there was a woman involved, it was a disagreement over a woman. Okay. And I was asking questions and uh, I'll never forget. I get a call at home one day and it was a high ranking Mavericks executive. And he said, well, I understand you've been asking questions about, uh, about uh, Jimmy and Jason. And I said, yeah. And uh, he says, so what are you hearing? And I told him and he said, uh, well, why don't you go ahead and write it? And I said, are you confirming it? And he said, yes, write it. But no details on like who the woman was or anything like that. But I, clearly what had happened by this point was that the Mavs were out of, they were essentially throwing their hands up. They had tried to solve this. They, they, they tried to bring those guys together. It wasn't work, put them in the same room to talk. It wasn't working. So public embarrassment became the last, last resort. And, and so, and then, so after that, it, it you know, the rumors emerged that it was about Tony Braxton. Yeah. My editors are on me. You got to write this Tony Braxton thing. Cause I told them that's what I heard, but I didn't quite, I didn't have it pinned down. And so uh, they said, well, there's only one way to find out. You need to talk to Tony Braxton. And I said, well, I mean, I'll try, you know? So I find we figure out who Tony Braxton's agent is and, uh, and I talked to the guy and immediately he starts laughing. He says, so you're writing a story about what? And I said, well, this is what I've heard. And he starts laughing and uh, he said, okay, well, give me, you know, give me some time. And then, so he calls back, I don't know, 30 minutes later and he patches me through to Tony Braxton's limousine. <laughs> and she is riding around. I don't know. She's on a concert tour and I believe her, if I'm not mistaken, her album at the time that she was promoting was called Secrets or something to that effect. Uh -huh. So this was perfect for her, right? And so her words, she started giggling and she said, uh, well, I can confirm that I know I know of those guys, but as far as anything else, a girl can never kiss and tell. And so that was the quote. Well, I, you know, through the years, I, I know it's it wasn't Tony Braxton, uh, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was a point where those guys weren't talking, right? At one point that season, Matty Gukas, who was uh, NBC Sports at the time, uh, he, I remember him coming through to do something mouse related. And I remember him turning to reporters at one time. There was a couple of us and he said, uh, 
what's the deal with these guys? They're not even like talking or anything. He said, in my experience, and this is a guy who didn't even know us. He said, in my experience, when you see something like that, it has to do with a woman. And there was all kinds of stuff floating around that year, but never completely pinned it down. But not long after that, you know, the new regime came in, Jim Jackson got traded. And actually that was after Kid made an ultimatum that one of us has to go. I just want to say uh, June 25th, 1996, Brad Townsend uh, byline. Point guard Jason Kidd is adamant about his demand to trade Jim Jackson for the good of the team. <laughs> Dallas Mavericks management and coach Jim Clemens response Monday was swift, terse, and equally adamant. We don't respond very well to ultimatums, minority owner uh, Frank Vac- uh, Zaccanelli said. We're going to do what's best for the organization. This is not going to alter our direction one inch. <laughs> the friction between Kidd and Jackson, which caused him to stop talking for six weeks last season, has been well documented, but Kidd magnified the issue. Uh, by saying that he or Jackson has to be traded. That is insane. And, you know, the winner of that story by far is Tony Braxton. Oh, sure. Yeah. I don't know how many albums she sold, but, uh, you know, yeah. A lot more pe- a lot of NBA people uh, still talk about her today who probably would have never even heard of her. I just want to say that 96, 97 Mavs, I've never seen anything like this. 27 total players on that roster. And I just want to say some of it, these are the guys, including the guys you covered that year. It's the weirdest thing ever. It's Sean Bradley, Sam Cassell, Michael Finley, Chris Gatling, AC Green, Derek Harper, Jimmy Jackson, Jason Kidd, Stacey King, Jamal Mashburn, George McLeod, Oliver Miller, Eric Montrose, Ed O'Bannon, Robert Pack, Khalid Reeves, uh, Jason Sasser, Eric Strickland, Samaki Walker. Like it's a who's who of early 90s NBA all passed through Dallas that season. Well, and part of that was the fact that uh, Don Nelson came in part of the way through that s- season, okay? So I have an Oliver Miller story oh. where uh, I was, uh, you know, Don Nelson literally had just been, they'd flown to Maui to hire him, and uh, he had just been hired. And I'm covering, it's just another game I'm covering, another loss, and uh, Oliver Miller hadn't played much. And uh, so he wasn't in the mood to talk or whatever. And I'm talking to uh, Terry Davis, who's sitting next to him. And then suddenly just Oliver Miller blurts out to me, says, I don't give a fuck. And I said, what? And he said, all this stuff, I don't give a fuck. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I want you to write that. I don't give a fuck. And Terry Davis is going, no, 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 no. Don't write that. Don't write that. And uh, and Oliver Miller was insistent that I write that. Well, I wrote that. You know, I don't give an expletive. Well, the next day, Don Nelson, in his first act as general manager, cuts Oliver Miller. He uses him as an example. He goes, we don't want players who don't give a rat's ass, you know. Wow. So, uh, sorry, Oliver, but you insisted. Did Oliver Miller ever say, why'd you run that? No. No. Yeah, that's good. No. And then also that year, well, that was also the year they, it was a revolving door. That was also the year they traded Jason Kidd. And at the time, they were between general managers. So they still hadn't hired Don. So Frank Zaccanelli was the acting general manager. And so I got to the old reunion arena. There's a couple, the day after Christmas, it was right around Christmas, and uh, Frank Zaccanelli pulls me aside and says, hey, I want to let you know, this is before Twitter, obviously, t- 
too bad. Hey, I want to let you know we're about to uh, announce this trade, give you the heads up. You know, we're trading Jason Kidd to Phoenix. And he goes on for a couple more seconds, and then he looks at me and he goes, what's wrong? Why do you have this funny look on your face? And I said, well, you just traded Jason Kidd. I'm not sure you understand the magnitude of that. Because he was acting general manager. He's a businessman. Uh, so I'll never forget that. In your career covering sports, who's the most difficult person you ever have covered? Uh, I would say Quinn Buckner. I mean, he, he was cordial, but he was, uh, he came uh, and actually, you know, that was my first year covering the Mavericks was Quinn's first and only year of being the coach. And so um, he came in with really a Bob Knight mentality because probably because that's what he knew. And that just doesn't work in the NBA. And so I wrote things that he didn't. And largely it was players complaining. You know, Jamal Mashburn after a game in L.A. early in the season just finally got set up, fed up and said, you know, we're, you know, we're sinking. We're, we're, we're not making good. Our offense sucks, blah, blah, blah. And so sure enough, you know, we got we arrived back in Dallas from uh, L.A. All these TV cameras are here to meet the team. It was such an uproar. Right. And it was just stuff like that all season. And Quinn was just so closed. I, it's one of the few times I guess I've covered nine or 10 NBA coaches. He was the most closed off coach. And I just want to know more about what made him tick or why he made certain decisions. And he slowly loosened up as the season went on. I think he realized, hey, I'm coming. I'm I'm on the wrong end of this. You know, I'm I need to show more of my personality, but it was too late. And this was a career first and only uh, late in that season. Um, I'm standing near the scores table before a game and uh, I see across the court. uh woman I instantly recognized, well, it was his wife. And so, but I see her, she spots me from across the court and she walks clear around the court and walks up to me and she stuck out her, her hand and said, uh, I'm Ronnie Buckner. And I said, yes, I know. Uh, and she said, would you do me a favor? And I said, okay. And she said, get off my husband's back. Wow. And she turned and marched away. There's been very few people. I wasn't say. Quinn was bad to deal with. He'd been in the NBA, but he hadn't been a coach. Right. 13 to 69 that season. So, uh, yes, not the yeah. best run. Um, you wrote a piece uh, a couple of years ago because you were in the bubble about your experience in the bubble. And your, your lead was um, seven days and approximately two hours into my quarantine confinement. The knock, the knock capitalized, came at 2.01 p.m. Sunday Eastern time. This wasn't one of my three daily mealtime knocks or my daily coronavirus test knock. This was the knock, the one from the NBA senior director of basketball communications, Mark Broussard, delivering my credential to cover the 2019-20 season restart from inside the Disney World bubble. Technically, I've been inside the bubble since Sunday morning of July 12th, but the NBA and its health experts stipulated that reporters immediately quarantined in our 314 square foot room at the Coronado Springs Resort and test negative for the coronavirus for seven straight days. Uh Big, broad question. Did you enjoy the bubble experience or hate the bubble experience? Uh, if you have to ask me, uh, there's a lot of gray area in there, but I would say enjoy. It was certainly a grind. I've covered several Olympics. Uh, that's a grind. This was a different kind of grind. But it was, uh, you certainly had this, the feeling of being historic. Uh, it was, you knew this was probably never going to happen again. And 
to be us to be one of you know i don't know 15 or 20 reporters who were in there and even to this day when i run into some of the other bubble reporters i just think there's kind of a nodding there's a knowing that we went through that and i was only in there for 50 days right. and i was only there while the maps were still playing some of the, you know, the lakers writers were there for over 100 days i don't know how they did it and, uh, and I was fortunate because I primarily covered the mass. What, and uh, although, of course, when the bigger issues arose, well, certainly the, the first game in the bubble and, and the anthem, and then all of a sudden there was going to be, all of a sudden there was the walkout. I certainly, I covered those bigger picture aspects, but I was fortunate that by and large, I just covered the mass. So when you're in the bubble, are you, are you hoping the team you cover does not, make the finals? Is that sort of a, like, I cannot be here for. No, no, I kind of, I figured that, uh, Hey, if I'm going to go this far, let's take it, let's take it all the way. I mean, I, it wasn't like I was rooting for the Mavs to, I guess I was rooting for the story as we always say, right. Certainly the story was going to be, I stay longer and the Mavs do uh, make a run. And uh, certainly there were some great moments for the Mavs, especially when, you know, they rally from 21 down to beat the Clippers in the playoffs. And Dontris makes the big uh, bomb at the uh, to win the game. Um, yeah, at that point, I was rooting for the story. Right. Uh, and my poor family had already been through, hey, what was another couple of weeks going to be? I mean, my, my wife, I have uh, twin uh, daughters who are 21 now. My wife had to move them into college uh, by herself, which is not easy, right? And uh, so I miss those things, uh, but they also understood that it was a kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity for me. I've actually never broached the subject on this podcast, which is sort of weird because um, you're the 263rd episode. Um, you have 21 year old daughters. You've been married a long time. They always talk about athlete wives and what athlete wives have to go through and the, what you have to endure. Um, but a sports writer wife and a guy who's, who's done a beat for a long time on and off, what does a wife have to endure? Like, what are the, what are the, what's the toll on a spouse when his or her spouse is a sports writer? Well, I think one of the good things for us is that my wife is not a sports fan at all. Yeah. So that was the case when we met. That remains the case now, although she, she certainly follows like when the Mavs are in the playoffs, she, she, that way she knows what's coming up for me. Um, it's hard. It's, it's hard. And I think uh, I was very fortunate in that uh, my early years of covering the Mavs, first of all, when I covered the Spurs, I was single. And then my uh, early years of covering the Mavs, I was newly married. And so that was definitely difficult, but we did not have kids yet. And uh, as it turned out, uh, my opportunity to step off the beat, first of all, to cover pro golf in 1997, still, not, still no kids. I traveled the world. Did British Opens, Ryder Cups. It was it was fantastic. We had our our twins were born in 2001. And of course, that changed our, our life dramatically. But by then I was doing takeouts. So uh, it was just divine timing, really. I, my travel schedule, uh, I didn't have to travel nearly as much. I, I really, I shudder to think if I had still been on a daily beat and having to do the grind, what kind of toll that would take. There was an opportunity early, early, early on my, in my career where I could have stayed in Houston. I was there briefly to cover the Astros. 
And I'm glad I didn't do that covering MLB 162 days a year. I, I don't know. I, I've never done a study on this, but I got to think the divorce rate for Major League Baseball beat writers is probably higher than the norm. Let me say the last thing. I was looking, you know, just scanning rosters you've covered and you've covered guys like Jason Kidd, who is now the coach of the team. You've covered guys like mm-hmm. Sean Rooks, who died. Uh, you've covered guys who are grandparents. You've covered, you know, like all the spectrum. Does this job keep you young or make you feel old? Lately, there's been a lot of uh, makes you feel old just for the things that you're talking about. You know, you're getting to second and in some cases, third generation people of of families that you've covered. Uh, But you know what? The biggest thing it makes me feel is grateful. Uh, Grateful that I've been around this long. Grateful that uh, that I made a point to have a diversity in my career where I wasn't I just wasn't shoehorned into being a beat writer. You know, nothing against beat writing, but I knew early on that I didn't want to do that for 30 years. Um, and so I'm grateful that the morning news has kept me employed this long and grateful that they've allowed me a platform of sorts to do the kind of stories I've gotten to do. Like we haven't discussed it. One of my, one of my favorite stories of the morning news was doing a feature on Mark Cuban about when he moved to Dallas and he lived in a three bedroom apartment with five guys and he slept on a floor and he piled his wrinkled clothes in, in a, in a corner. And those are the stories that you live to do and that I wouldn't have gotten to do had the morning news not embraced the fact that those are the kind of stories that resonate uh, the kind of behind the scenes stories that are, that people just love. And, uh, you know, that just showed that Mark Cuban, billionaire Mark Cuban, was just like you and me uh, coming out of college, a poor college kid eating ragu out of a jar. When I remember when I was uh, at Sports Illustrated and one of my colleagues like emailed Mark Cuban, I'm just going to try emailing him. And he wound up getting this like super long response and, you know, wordy. (laughs) Um, But I, I may have this totally wrong and you can tell me. So Cuban seems like he's he's good fodder for you guys. And like a generally agreeable media presence, or am I am I misreading that? I've gotten into some pretty heated things with Mark, or not me toward him, but he hadn't he didn't like some of the things I've written, and he'll let you know. I think those little battles actually help you in the long run because you you, know, you stand up and you say, well, here's why I wrote it, and here's why I think this was fair, and uh, then. Uh, I'll give him credit for this. He'll 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 f you and mf you in a DM. Uh, but then a week later, he's talking. He's you know we had an exchange early this year, and then a couple weeks after that was uh, the trade deadline, and he saw me and he said, and this is before a trade was even uh, could be talked about. He's you know we kind of had a little. That was our first exchange since the DM, um, our first time seeing each other personally. And uh, he kind of got in a couple more zingers and smile. We both, you know, talked it through. And then he said, and then he kind of started walking away. And then he said, uh, turn says, do you need anything? Well, obviously I want to know about the trade. Why, why you traded Christoph Sporzingis. So we're on the spot. So there's, there's, it's, there's a lot of back and forth with Mark. Um, You certainly always know how he feels. Um, It's, it's, it's obviously it's uh, developed over the years where it's, he's not as accessible in terms of he used to be, you could 
find him before every game on the Stairmaster outside the Mavs locker room. Well, we're not even allowed there now because of COVID. And, and even when we are, he's, that's not where his little workout area is anymore. So it's, it's, he's not accessible in person nearly as much as he was, but he's always responsive. He still answers emails and DMs and stuff like that. Are you allowed to zing back? He's like, hey, F you, blah, 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 blah. I'll stand up for myself. I'll say, well, here's why I wrote this. Uh, I'm not going to MF him back. Yeah. I'm not going to do that to anybody. I mean, I, first of all, you don't know where that stuff is going to uh, end up. I mean, Mark Mark has on occasion uh, early in his tenure, he if a sports writer sent him something that was objectionable or whatever, he would he would air it. He would out it or he would oh, yeah. take a screenshot. So it's not just because that. that's my policy in general. There's just not a lot of upside to that. But I do think it's important to stand up for yourself. Um, you know, you just don't have to name call in return. Well, Brad, listen, I a uh, big admirer of your career. I'm a big admirer of anyone older than me who lasts in this profession because I feel <laughs> more and more like a dinosaur. So I like having fellow dinosaurs around me who uh, who have been writing for a long time. I, I just think obviously your work is stood the test of time and widely respected in this, in this field. And I should have had you on months and years ago. So I'm, I'm glad you finally did it. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I really enjoy it. I appreciate you having me on. I want to thank today's guest, Brad Townsend, for joining me on Two Riders, Sun and Yang. You can follow Brad on Twitter, at TownBrad, and read his work in the Dallas Morning News. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders, Sun and Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this pod, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.